when the end, when the end, Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? Friends, fellow wisdom seekers, truth seekers, anybody else out there just checking in with that unquenchable thirst for knowledge and wisdom on that journey just like me. Welcome to the Brave New World Order podcast. Straight out the dungeons of podcasting, I am Brandon St. One. Thank you all so much for joining me for this episode. We are going to dive into The Gods of Eden by William Bramley, an amazing book that I just read and I want to share it with you. So we're going to go through it chapter by chapter. What is The Gods of Eden by William Bramley? Well, right from the cover of the book, it says it's the chilling truth about extraterrestrial infiltration and the conspiracy to keep humankind in chains. It goes along with the theme similar to the Anunnaki creating humans and keeping us as workers. So it has so much shit in it. This book has so much information, but we're going to go just go through and pick out some of the interesting key data points in it. And I'm just going to read from the back of the book here. And it says, they came to earth millions of years ago to spread the poison of hatred, war, and catastrophe. They are still with us. Human history is a seemingly endless succession of bloody conflicts and devastating turmoil, yet inexplicably, in the light of astonishing intellectual and technological advancement, man's progress has been halted in one crucial area. He still indulges the primitive beast within and makes war upon his neighbors. As a result of seven years of intensive research, William Bramley has uncovered the sinister thread that links humanity's darkest events from the wars of the ancient pharaohs to the assassination of JFK. In this remarkable, shocking, and absolutely compelling work, Bramley presents disturbing evidence of an alien presence on Earth, extraterrestrial visitors who have conspired to dominate humankind through violence and chaos since the beginning of time, a conspiracy which continues to this very day. Now you can see why I thought this was worth a read, and I definitely think it's worth sharing with you all, and we're going to go into it. There's like 41 chapters. The first couple chapters are just talking about like basic UFO stuff that the author himself even says this book is really for people who already studied UFOs a little bit already, so I might just even go right past the first three or so chapters, just like talk about them real quick, because there's not that much stuff that's like that mind-blowing but when this book gets going it really gets going it's really really awesome so i thank you all so much for joining me going through this so let's go let's swan dive into the fucking abyss into the gods of eden by william bramley let's go all right chapter one titled the search begins and we're just gonna go through this one real quick because it just sets the stage about how the author got into UFOs and the rabbit hole that he went down 
that led him to write this book. So his interest started with war and how wars shape the whole world and what causes these wars. And he came to the conclusion that war can be its own valuable commodity and also war can be an effective tool for maintaining social and political control over a large population. And when he says that war is a valuable commodity, he's referring to the military industrial complex, manufacturing arms and selling them to countries all over the world. And then eventually you can go to war with those countries. And then the cycle continues on and on. He says that war can be an effective tool for maintaining social and political control over the population. He references 16th century Italy where the prince conquered a neighboring city, and then he would breed internal conflicts amongst the citizens. He didn't care what they were squabbling about, just as long as they didn't turn on him. And I've talked about this in the past, about what's going on now, and how everybody's fighting one another. It's a culture war, and all that shit. I like this paragraph right here where he says, A state of war can also be used to encourage populations to think in ways that they would not otherwise do and to accept the formation of institutions that they would normally reject. The longer a nation involves itself in wars, the more entrenched those institutions and ways of thinking will become. He references third-party activities in wars, like in the American Revolution, how France had sent intelligence agents to America to stir up colonial discontent against the British crown. And he says it is no secret that the German military had aided Lenin and the Bolsheviks in the Russian Revolution of 1917. Throughout all of history, people and nations have benefited from and have contributed to the existence of other people's conflicts. So he sets it up how his interest in war and how it didn't seem to be so cut and dry like one country just waging war on another. There's always some other third-party activities, other people stirring the pot. And he wanted to, quote, discover what common threads, if any, may have existed between various third-party influences in history, unquote. And then he goes on to say that the deeper he dug into this, a common thread did emerge. And it was so bizarre that on two occasions he terminated his research in disgust. But he powered through, he kept going, and he kept going deeper. And then he had to face the reality that some human problems may be rooted in some of the most utterly bizarre realities imaginable. And I like what he says right here because it's so true. He says, because such realities are rarely acknowledged, let alone understood, they are not dealt with. As a result, the problems those realities generate are rarely resolved, and so the world seems to stumble from one calamity to the next. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Pay attention to the news, go online, go on Twitter. One calamity to the next every single fucking day. So he says when he started the research, he was biased. He was expecting to find a human profit motive as that common thread which links various third-party influences in mankind's violent history. But instead, what he found was UFO. And he says, the last sentence in this chapter, nothing could have been more unwelcome. All right, 
That is chapter one titled The Search Begins. Nice little setup for this mind-blowing book. Show where his mindset is and what led him down the rabbit hole that became this wonderful book, The Gods of Eden. And now we're moving on to chapter two, which is titled Orientation. And this chapter is pretty much about humans, homo sapiens being more than just flesh and blood. And he talks about the idea of spirituality in the spiritual being. And he says, quote, the definition of a spiritual being shared by several religions appears to be the most accurate one. A spiritual being is an entity possessed of awareness, creativity, and personality. It is not composed of matter or of any other component of the physical universe. It appears instead to be an immortal unit of awareness, which cannot perish, although it can become entrapped by physical matter. The spiritual being is fully capable of understanding itself. Unquote. He goes on to say how we currently view the brain as like the center of awareness and personality and how scientists have been able to stimulate different parts of the brain and stimulate physiological manifestations of emotions. And he thinks that this reveals how the brain is nothing more than a sophisticated switchboard capable of being activated by a variety of external sources such as as by an experimenter with his electrodes, or even perhaps a spiritual being with its own energy output. So you can kind of see where he's going with this. He's talking about consciousness, and he's talking about the physical body being an avatar. I like to think of it like we are a soul, we are a spirit that has a body, not we are this body this manifestation, and we have a soul. It's the other way around. And I kind of think that's where he's going to with this. And he asks the question, like, what does this have to do with UFOs and human warfare? Well, it has everything to do with all of that because it's all about suppressing us, our true nature. I've also talked about this a lot in past episodes, how we are being tricked into thinking that we are just little specks of dust and little pieces of shit on a little speck of a planet in the biggest, widest, vast infinity of a universe. So we really just don't mean shit. Very insignificant when you put it that way, right? Well, we're going to explore that much more as we dive into this book further and continue to move along to chapter three, which is titled UFOs, Truth or fiction? He asks, what are they? Where do they come from? He says that the term unidentified flying object was coined by U.S. Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppelt in 1951, where they were usually called flying saucers beforehand because of how they appeared in the sky. He also talks about how UFO sightings were not really talked about in the mainstream media at all prior to 1947. So most people assume that UFOs are a relatively modern phenomenon, but he claims that is not the case. In fact, writer Julius Obsequins reproduced the following account from 216 BC in his book Prodigium Liber. Quote, Things like ships 
were seen in the sky over Italy. At Arpi, a round shield was seen in the sky. At Capua, the sky was all on fire, and one saw figures like ships. He also claims in the first century AD famed Roman statesman Cicero recorded a night during which the sun, accompanied by loud noises, was reportedly seen in the night sky. The sky appeared to split open and reveal strange spheres, and also that UFOs became so troublesome in the 8th and 9th centuries that Emperor Charlemagne of France was compelled to issue edicts forbidding them from perturbing the air and provoking storms. In one episode, some of Charlemagne's subjects were taken up in aerial ships and shown marvels, then returned to Earth, only to be put to death by an angry mob. And then he talks about how the ancient religions of Mesopotamia, Egypt, and the South Americas were dominated by the adoration of human-like gods from the heavens. And this is where he mentions the ancient astronaut theory and Eric von Daniken in his book, Chariots of the Gods. And he gets a lot more into it in later chapters, or I should say he expands on that whole theory. And as well as the theories of Charles Fort and by Oxford professor and Nobel laureate Frederick Soddy. Both of these men, they wrote a bunch of interesting books way back in the early 1900s, late 1800s about weird objects in the sky, as well as examining how the ancient old and new world civilizations that were located on opposites of the earth, how they came to so closely resemble one another, and how they developed such similar religious beliefs. To this day, nobody really knows and understands why that is. Lots of different theories out there, lots of evidence to support all of the theories, but none of them really encompass all of the known facts, which led Frederick Soddy in 1910 to say, quote, Some of the beliefs and legends bequeathed to us by antiquity are so universally and firmly established that we have become accustomed to consider them as being almost as ancient as humanity itself. Nevertheless, we are tempted to inquire how far the fact that some of these beliefs and legends have so many features in common is due to chance, and whether the similarity between them may not point to the existence of an ancient, totally unknown, and unsuspected civilization of which all other traces have disappeared. Unquote. So that's a pretty interesting quote by a Oxford professor and Nobel laureate Frederick Soddy in 1910 that raises the question about how all these ancient civilizations had so many similar ideas and symbolism and religious aspects. And then the author of this book, William Bramley, talks about Atlantis and Lemuria as being possibilities of these ancient races and civilizations. And those survivors of those lost worlds spread across the rest of the world with the knowledge that they previously had. And that is one theory. Pretty interesting stuff. Everybody loves Atlantis and a little bit of Lemuria. But he goes on to talk about Professor Saudi's contemporary, who I just mentioned, Charles Hoy Fort. 
And Charles Fort is most known for writing books like New Lands and one called The Book of the Damned that came out in the 20s. And he, Fort is a man who supported himself on a small inheritance. And he spent his life amassing reports of unusual phenomena from scientific journals, newspapers, and magazines. He collected stories of such events like unusual moving lights in the sky, rainfalls of animals, and other occurrences which seem to defy conventional scientific explanation. And after all of his extensive research, he concluded that the Earth's skies were hosting an array of extraterrestrial aircraft he called superconstructions. Fort had many theories that he developed from his research, many very controversial and provocative, but one of them from the Book of the Dam that William Bramley quotes here is, quote, I think we are property. I should say we belong to something. That once upon a time, this earth was a no man's land. That other worlds explored and colonized here and fought among themselves for possession. But that now it's owned by something. That something owns this earth. All others warned off. Unquote. Fort also compared the human race to self-satisfied livestock, and he believed that a direct influence over human affairs was being exerted by Earth's apparent owners. Quote, I suspect that after all, we are useful, that among contesting claimants, adjustment has occurred, or that something now has a legal right to us, by force or by having paid out analogs of beads for us to former, more primitive owners of us, that all of this has been known, perhaps for ages, to certain ones upon this earth, a cult or order, members of which function like bellwethers to the rest of us, or as a superior slaves or overseers, directing us in accordance with instructions received from somewhere else, in our mysterious usefulness. So I think out of this chapter, that is all the most interesting stuff to go through because then it just goes through a bunch of different questions that people who try to debunk UFOs ask. And then he kind of breaks down why those arguments don't really hold up. So I don't really want to go through all of those because it's like 14 different points. I really wanted to talk about Charles Fort and his theories because that's the shit that really sets up this book. I want to get to the goods. So that's it for that chapter. Chapter 3, UFOs, Truth or Fiction. All right, moving on to Chapter 4, which is titled the same as the book, The Gods of Eden. And this is where William Bramley really dives into the goods. He begins the chapter by talking about how Human beings being a slave race owned by an extraterrestrial society is not a new idea. He says it was expressed thousands of years ago in mankind's earliest recorded civilizations, and the first of those was Sumeria. They were a remarkably advanced society that arose by the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley between 5000 and 4000 BC. And by 3,500 BC, they were a major civilization. 
The records that Sumeria left stated that human-like creatures of extraterrestrial origin had ruled early human society as the first monarchs on Earth. He said that these people were looked at as gods, quote, unquote. And these gods were said to travel in the skies and through the heavens in flying globes and rocket-like vehicles. Not all of the Mesopotamian gods were human-like extraterrestrials. He says some of them were fabrications and fictitious attributes were often ascribed to the extraterrestrial human-like gods. But he says once you strip away all the bullshit, you discover in the Mesopotamian pantheon a distinct class of beings who do indeed fit the quote-unquote ancient astronauts mold. But then he goes on to say to better discuss these high-tech gods, he wants to invent a new term because the word God just contains too much undeserved awe. That's what he says. And then also the term ancient astronaut pigeonholes them into the distant past when in fact he says they maintain a continuous presence all the way up to this very day. And then he says the label extraterrestrial is too broad. So he comes up with this word and calls them the custodians and refers to them as the custodial society. These custodians are the Anunnaki that Zachariah Sitchin talked about in many of his books that a lot of us are very familiar with. According to the history that's inscribed on these Mesopotamian tablets, there was a time when human beings were not around at all. And these custodians had to use backbreaking labor to exploit the rich mineral and natural resources of Earth. And they weren't happy about it. And one of the tablets says, quote, When the gods like men bore the work and suffered the toil, the toil of the gods was great. The work was heavy. The distress was muck. Unquote. So that tablet shows that these gods carried out building, excavation, and mining operations on Earth, and they did not like it whatsoever. They were prone to complaining, backstabbing, and rebellion against their leaders. This custodial society got pretty pissed off and fed up when have to do all this backbreaking labor, building shit, and digging, excavating for minerals. They decided to come up with a solution. And that solution was to create a slave race to do all the hard work for them. And this is where good old Homo sapiens come into the picture. Us. They created, supposedly, according to many theories, but the Mesopotamian tablets such as the Eridu Genesis and the Enuma Elish tell a story about God being put to death by other gods and the body and blood are then mixed into clay. Out of this concoction, humans are made. And these humans, these Homo sapiens, look very much like the custodians who created them. In their image, and that might be where in the Old Testament, if you're catching the reference, that God creates man in his image. And the author references Zechariah Sitchin once again, who thought maybe perhaps that this clay that they're talking about is some kind of biological engineering that's being inserted into the wombs 
of female custodial gods. And then that creates this new breed of human race. Slave race, don't forget. It's very important. They wanted us and still want us to do all the heavy lifting. Now he goes on to say how the ancient Mesopotamian tablets credit one custodian in particular with the supervision of creating Homo sapiens, and that custodian's name was Ea. Ea was the son of a custodian king from the planet or whatever empire they were from before. Maybe Atlantis, maybe the 10th planet, Nibiru. Who knows? Nobody really knows. It's all speculation at this point, but it looks like something happened to wherever these people, these custodians, these gods are from. Some kind of cataclysm that led them here. And this is where it gets interesting because Prince Ea is also known as Enki, which means Lord or Prince of the Earth. And Enki, I've talked about Enki before, because Enki might be Thoth from the Emerald Tablets of Thoth the Atlantean. So Prince Ea, Enki are one in the same. So Enki or Prince Ea is given credit by the Mesopotamian tablets for many accomplishments, but the biggest one is engineering Homo sapiens. Enki had a brother whose name was Enlil, and they were given dominion over the earth, and they battled over it for different parts of the land, and after they created Homo sapiens, it seems like Enki was an advocate for the Homo sapiens. He tried to treat them well, or at least better than the other custodians who were cruel, and they treated the new race really bad, and they treated them as slaves and inflicted punishment upon punishment. It seems like Enki didn't intend when he created humans to have them treated so badly, but his wishes were overthrown by these other malicious custodial rulers. The clay tablets tell of catastrophic cruelties perpetuated by these custodians. Cold-blooded population control measures were carried out frequently. Quote, 1,200 years had not yet passed when the land extended and the peoples multiplied. The land was bellowing like a bull. The god got disturbed with their uproar. Enlil, half-brother and rival of Enki, heard their noise and addressed the great gods. The noise of mankind has become too intense for me. With their uproar, I am deprived of sleep. Cut off supplies for the peoples. Let there be a scarcity of plant life to satisfy their hunger. Adad, another custodian, should withhold his reign. And below, the flood, the regular flooding of the land which made it fertile, should not come up from the abyss. Let the wind blow and parch the ground. Let the clouds thicken but not release a downpour. Let the fields diminish their yields. There must be no rejoicing among them. That is the words of Enlil, who sounds very similar to Yahweh, very controversial subject. But there is a theory out there that Yahweh is the god of murder 
and that he is Enlil, and that Enki is Enoch, and is related to Abraham, and there's been a complete inversion and a separation in two different covenants. One, the serpent code of Moses and Yahweh, the God of murder, and the other, the true Abrahamic covenant that's related to Enoch and Enki that's encoded in the Great Pyramid, which was also called at one point the Pillars of Enoch. Just a side note for you. That's a pretty interesting theory that's floating out there. And it is connected to this book, The Gods of Eden, that we're going through at the moment. Here's another command from Enlil. Quote, Command that there be a plague. Let Namtar diminish their noise. Let disease, sickness, plague, and pestilence blow upon them like a tornado. They commanded, and there was a plague. Namtar diminished their noise. Disease, sickness, plague, and pestilence blew upon them like a tornado. Unquote. So there's one attempt right there by the evil custodial gods to silence these new humans who are making too much noise, probably not following the science, asking questions, and it didn't work. These efforts didn't. So what came next? A big flood, a great flood, the Epic of Gilgamesh that is from Babylon, and it predates the Bible the story of Noah's Ark. Same stories, all folded into one. But this is what happens when you anger these custodians. But in all of these stories, something, an angel, or somebody warns the hero of the story that there is a flood coming and orders him to prepare for it and gather whatever he needs to gather, livestock and two of everything or whatever the fuck bullshit is in the story, right? So that being might be Enki, who liked the humans and didn't want them to get flooded and destroyed and lit on fire and all that shit. So he went and warned somebody or maybe a group of people. There are some stories that say a few arcs were built, not just one arc, that there was a fleet of them to save mankind. But that's just another out there theory anyway. But Somebody or something, some being warns Noah and also the hero of the Epic of Gilgamesh, whose name is very hard to pronounce, Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim. Sorry about that. That was pretty bad. But I'm giving it my all. Try my best here. But you can see the connections that are being made, that the stories of the Old Testament aren't the originals. They were taken from much older writings. And the author says here, Biblical authors simply altered the names and changed the many quote-unquote gods of the original writings into the one quote-unquote god or lord of the Hebrew religion. The later change was an unfortunate one because it caused a supreme being to be blamed for the brutal acts that earlier writers had attributed to the very ungodlike custodians. Then he brings back the Adam and Eve story and mentions how God, or this custodian, 
place them in the garden to tend to it. And just as long as they did everything they were told, and just as long as they never ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, they could remain in paradise forever. And the author believes that these trees are symbolic. The tree of knowledge of good and evil symbolizes an understanding of ethics and justice. The tree of life symbolizes the knowledge of how to regain and retain one's spiritual identity and immortality. He uses Genesis chapter 3, passage 22, And the Lord God said, Look, the man has become as one of us, knowing good from evil. And now, what if he puts forth his hand, and takes also of the tree of life, and eats, and lives forever? So William Bramley believes that a true understanding of ethics, integrity, and justice is a prerequisite to regain one's spiritual freedom and immortality. He says, without a foundation in ethics, full spiritual recovery becomes nothing more than a pipe dream. And that makes a lot of sense. So he thinks that the custodians didn't want mankind to travel down the road of spiritual recovery because they wanted slaves. But it seems like there's something in us humans, in mankind, that always continues to search for the truth. And it gives them headaches and they don't like it. And he references Genesis chapter 3, how these custodians at the east of the Garden of Eden placed cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to shield the way to the tree of life. So they would do anything to prevent access to this knowledge, according to William Bramley. He says the flaming sword symbolizes the no-nonsense measures that the custodians undertook to ensure that genuine spiritual knowledge would never become available to the human race. And just because they disobeyed, these custodians were so angry they fully intended to make humans live their entire lives and die without ever rising above the level of arduous material existence. They want to make sure that humans don't have the time, the energy, or the will they need to become spiritually free. And that pretty much sums up what the custodians are all about and what this book is about. And I'm going to read the last paragraph of this chapter because this is very important. It says, In the story of Adam and Eve, we noted the appearance of a snake. The serpent was said to be God's enemy, Satan, who had literally transformed himself into a reptile. The Bible suggests that snakes are feared and disliked today because of Satan's alleged transformation back in the Garden of Eden. However, it should be remembered that the biblical Adam and Eve story is entirely symbolic. The snake, too, was a symbol, not an actual reptile. To determine what the biblical snake represented, we must go back once again to older, pre-biblical sources. When we do so, we discover that the snake symbol had two very important meanings in the ancient world. It was associated 
with the custodial god Enki, reputed creator and benefactor of mankind. And it also represented an influential organization with which Enki was associated. And that organization is called the Brotherhood of the Snake. And we are going to dive into Chapter 5, which is titled The Brotherhood of the Snake, in Part 2 of our journey into William Bramley's The Gods of Eden. Thank you all so much for joining me for Part 1. This book is pretty big and there's a lot of information. And even though we're going through it, I definitely recommend getting a copy for yourselves. Amazing book. We can't even get into all of the awesome details in it, but we're going to do our best to just keep going chapter by chapter, as many parts as it takes. But I think this is pretty good for part one. So thank you all so much for joining me, Brandon St. One, for this episode of the Brave New World Order podcast. I want to thank everybody that supports the show. If you want to help out, there are a couple links in the show notes. You could always reach out, say what's up, email me, the Brave New World Order Podcast at gmail.com. You could also follow me on Twitter, which is now called X. But yeah, follow me on there at Brave NWO Podcast. So I will see you all very soon. Thanks for tuning in for part one of the Gods of Eden. Keep an eye out for part two. I'll get to that as soon as possible, as well as anything else that I want to talk about. So hit that subscribe button as well, so you know when I drop new episodes. Take care, everybody. Stay positive. Question everything. Think for yourselves. And I will see you soon. Much love.